Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for June 6, 2019. I'm Charles Hain. I'm George Edelman. We're going to talk about the big news out of Cupertino this week. We're also going to talk about some Cinegear news from Panasonic, Panavision, and C-Motion. All that and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, and we're back with the biggest story of the week. It is so big, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a whole bunch of water and pull it from all of the other stories. And that is Apple, after six years, has finally released a new Mac Pro. Which has is, it actually, has it really been that long? I mean, it's been six years since the 2013 came out. And the 2013 has not been great. Like, I remember when the 2013 came out, Apple had been doing a, a one-year release cycle on the Mac Pro for a long time, and it'd been then it switched to like a two-year release cycle. And then when the 2013 came out, we'd all been like sort of looking at each other, waiting on a new one for a long time. So in a lot of ways, a lot of people have been waiting for this new Mac Pro, the, a new cheese grater, nine years maybe? Something like 2010, 2011 is when we started to think, all right, well, Apple needs to redesign the cheese grater. And when the 2013, the trash can, as it's called, came out, a lot of people didn't feel like it was it. The reason why filmmakers... I was just, just going to say, I to me, I always remember that one as being the trash can. Some people who are nice call it the R2-D2, but a lot of people do call <laughs> it the trash can. And look, the school where I teach, is, teach has like 35 of the trash cans. They do the job. They are very fast. They are... Okay, the problem with them is filmmakers are hard on everything we use. Like I had a Power Mac, and I taught myself to color grade on that Power Mac G5, an original cheese grater... And I burn out the graphics card. And because it was a Power Mac G5, I opened it up following instructions I found on the internet. I pulled out the graphics card. It was burnt. I bought a new one off the internet. I put it in myself. I never had to go anywhere. And I was back up and running with a better graphics card for color grading, able to do more advanced work for a couple hundred bucks. It was awesome. But that's what we loved about the cheese grater is we, we're hard on things, <laughs> filmmakers. We burn through our RAM. We burn through our graphics cards. We want to be able to replace it. And if you're lucky enough to live in a place with a 24-hour place where you can buy parts, like there's an Apple store that's 24 hours here in New York, but you can go get a graphics card and you can keep working when it's 4 in the morning, or you can pull it out of another machine and keep going. The 2013 didn't work for filmmakers because it tried to be too integrated. Everything was in one case and you couldn't swap things out. And now when a graphics card dies on one of those, you've got to send it to Apple to get repaired, even if it's under warranty. So it tried to be too mac Right. Well, it tried to be too consumer Mac, right? Like there's that famous yeah. cross section that Steve Jobs yeah. drew in the 90s where he drew a line and then a cross. And he was like, all right, in mobile, we want a consumer and a professional tool. And in desktop, we want a consumer and a professional tool. And the consumer tool is the iMac and it's all integrated and it's all seamless. And you're never going to swap out the graphics card because you hopefully shouldn't be doing anything on an iMac to burn out that graphics card. And then you're going to have the Mac Pro where it's all replaceable and flexible and work withable. And the same was always true in mobile. There's always like the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. But if you try and turn the Pro unit into two consumer of a unit, you really hobble its functionality. And we can't discount the fact that when Apple brought out that original, the 2013 MacBook Pro was also the time of the weird rollout of Final Cut 10, where yes. a, a lot of people felt like, what? But we hadn't had a new Mac Pro. And like two weeks ago, if you went to apple.com and spec'd out a Mac Pro, it was the same specs as it was in 2013 and the same price. So at the Worldwide Developer Conference, Apple released a brand new cheese grater. Like, it looks like a cheese grater. 
Mac Pro that allows replacing your own graphics cards. It has eight PCI slots. PCI slots are the slots that your expansion cards go in, your graphics cards, your video output cards, your storage interface cards. So it has eight. The old Mac Pro had four. So it's like doubling that. I mean, the old Mac Pro from 10 years ago, not the one from 2013. Um, has Thunderbolt 3 built into the top. You can take the bottom off and replace it with wheels. You can have up to 1.5 terabytes of RAM. It's going to be like $20,000. No one will actually do that. <laughs> but they rolled out, you know, 1,400 watt power supply. It is a big, beefy, robust, professional machine that is designed to be fear field serviceable. So, you know, what I used to love about that old cheese grater is like, I'd have a thing and it'd have a big graphics card in it and I could put a Blackmagic video input-output card in it. And then literally I'd put it in the backseat of my car, I'd seatbelt it in, the seatbelt would go through its arms and I could drive it to set. The handles were a big deal. And with the, um, the only place you could pick up a trash can was by picking it up by the top <laughs> lip and there were instructions saying, do not pick it up by the top lip. So this thing is gonna be very exciting for working professionals. And then there are a couple tricks up the sleeve that are kind of interesting. So going back to that PCI slot, Apple gave us eight PCI slots, hooray. But two of them have this interesting WPX extension. It's like a second PCI slot next door. And what, what it does is they also worked with AMD to make these custom graphics cards that are like two graphics cards in one that use both of the slots. So you're only taking up officially one like PCI slot, but it's the equivalent of having two graphics cards in the machine. And because there's two WPX slots, you can have the equivalent of four graphics cards in the machine and still have four other slots to work with. So you're gonna see a whole lot of interesting, very powerful applications where you've got like those two graphics cards and then like a Blackmagic video intensity output or something. And on top of all that, they came out with this cool thing called the Afterburner. The Afterburner is a dedicated video processing card, much like the Red Rocket used to be. I mean, you could still buy one used that was just for playing back red footage. The Afterburner is just speeding up video playback. And with the Afterburner, sure. you can play eight, three tracks of 8K video in real time. Can you sort of break down for me like a use case, like a scenario where you're running all of this and like what you're like in terms of amount of footage or quality of footage or... Absolutely. So a good example would be you went out and you shot a uh, indie feature and you shot multi-camera because of aesthetic reasons. And you're like, I want to shoot multi-camera. A lot of indie filmmakers shoot single camera. Totally respect that. But sometimes you're in a hurry and you're like, I'm going to shoot multi-camera. I'm going to go out with three 8K cameras and I'm going to run those three 8K cameras on every scene. It also... From the perspective of, you know, you don't, maybe you don't want to spend as much time getting coverage. So you're getting coverage on every take. I've done that before on Indie Feature. So your scenario sounds uh, familiar. Yeah. So what happens a lot of times is then to get that kind of thing through post, every editing application has a way to sync all those shots together in a, some sort of multicam mode where they're all linked together and the software can play them back together and the editor can just hit keystrokes, shortcuts on the keyboard and switch between angles. So they can do like a live cut and you can bring them up all together. And if the client is ever like, oh, hey, can I see a different angle in this moment? They're all linked. But to do that, yeah, the software yeah. has to play all three of those video tracks at the same time. Traditionally, in order to make this work, if you shot 8K, you would have done like a low res transcode to like a 1080p or a 720p in order to let your computer have the processing power to work. But then at the end of the job, 
you're going to have to go back and relink that all to the 8K. As post workflow is getting tighter and tighter, as we're running into less and less time to do our jobs, that step, both those steps, the making low res transcodes and the relinking to your raws at the end are steps people don't want to spend time on because they're not the fun creative part. Having all that power available to you is really huge. And the most exciting thing to me about all that power in the afterburner card is that when you burn it, like it's called the afterburner, almost in their name is an acknowledgement from Apple that you will probably burn it out. If there's a 24 hour Apple store near you at 4 a.m., you can go to that Apple store on Fifth Avenue in New York and buy a new one if you need to keep working. <laughs> um, you don't have to replace the whole That's, Mac so Pro. It's a piece that you can take out and put back in. To put it in old timey terms, you don't need to do a work print and then finish on your final oh, yeah. <laughs> your final print. Does it put us in a situation where finishing in 8K is just more of a thing people would do or finishing like in finishing in higher resolution, delivering I think higher resolution? If it is as powerful as the demos say it was, it has the possibility of changing how we think about the editing and the finishing steps. We're going to leave 8K delivery out of it because I don't know anyone with an 8K monitor and I don't know anyone broadcasting right. it. But this is actually an <laughs> argument for like you're finishing 4K but why don't you just cut 8K and then when you want to reposition a shot or you want to zoom in or you want to do anything at, so it's not even finishing 4K. I mean, it's not even finishing 8K. It's arguing, make right. the machine powerful enough that you just work 8K the full time and then deliver to your 4K master at the end, having worked at full resolution, which is something that when the machine's not powerful enough, why waste your time doing that? You're going to wait on renders. You're going to wait on everything. But if the machine has the power to do it, if you could literally every time the director or the DP is like, hey, can we zoom in and how does that look? You don't have to say, right. oh, I can't really tell you what that looks like until we reconnect to the raw. You're connected to the raw. You do the zoom in. The director and the DP are in the room and they're like, yeah, actually, the zoom in looks fine. I don't notice any quality loss. And you just keep going. That's super exciting. And it's something that was like not possible without this kind of power. And it makes shooting in 8k make more sense as well right actually having a post workflow that makes it sustainable I, I i think does make it make more sense i also want to remind people as i always do when we start talking about higher resolutions that there's always a big difference between like like raw 8k and debayered 8k so there's cameras that are officially 8k but once you debayer them their only visible resolution is like four and a half k Right, the original Red One MX is a bare sensor camera, so it shot 4K, but it was only about two and a half K in resolution. And Arri Alexa has always given you debayered files, so like the Arri LF gives you debayered 4K files, and those are actually 4K resolution after debayering. The other thing this is going to help filmmakers with a lot is as you start piling on effects. So right. if you shoot something night exterior and it's got a little noise on it, noise correction has always been a real graphics processing hog. Whereas if you have all this power and you can just noise correct like crazy, I think it's going to, we're going to see some aesthetic changes having this much power in our hands. What's the price point on this? So, so here's the thing. And the internet already hates this. Even before I opened Twitter, I could tell the internet was going to hate this. $5,999 is the starting price for the base model with like the minimum specs. You can get it for less than $6,000. Yes, less than $6,000. You should think about buying this machine if you are 
working professionally, expecting to work professionally, able to bill for the usage of this machine in addition to your time, etc. Not if you're going to cut a couple projects by yourself, correct? If you're going to cut a couple projects by yourself, the iMac is an amazing tool. The uh, iMac Pro is great, but that's still five grand. But like, I do a lot of work on a 2013 MacBook Pro. The 2018 MacBook Pro is dynamite. If you're like, I'm a one mule team out here in the world, flying solo, don't have a lot of clients, building a business, I don't think you're quite in the place. That This is a reach purchase. They really want to communicate to the market, we have made a no compromises machine for you working professionals. We get a lot of conversations within our community, I think, on No Film School and on face, No Film School's Facebook page. Whenever we post about a camera that says, for example, this is like 8K or this is 6K, and I think we've even made jokes about mo- even more of more resolution. And I wonder if it's like, you know, at what point are some of those things becoming a reality? There's a point to which you can't tell the difference. And like I, you know, when we go to NAB and there's always an 8K monitor and I have a really hard time seeing the difference in an 8K monitor and a 4K monitor. So for me, I think it's really important to remember the distinction between like distribution. And I think 8K distribution might never happen because the networks might never want to pay for it. Uh, Hmm. It's been hard enough to get all of the networks in North America to pay for all of the infrastructure to switch to HD. I think it's going to be like, they're not all 4K yet. I don't think 8K is going to be a thing for a while there. But no. that doesn't. You remember when switching switching to HD? There <laughs> oh started my God. To be ads for people that were like, "Hey, we just got to let you know that we have to do this. It's coming. The future is coming." And they were clearly targeted towards people who had no interest in switching. In oh yeah, and they had to <laughs> give people vouchers. If you still had a standard Def <laughs> TV, you got a voucher to help you buy an HD TV. Um, it was so much work to do that. But just because we're not distributing it doesn't mean there aren't use cases where it's beneficial to shoot it. I shot a lot of projects that were finishing 2K and we shot them at 4K, 5K, 6K. Here at the school, we're shooting a lot of thesis films 8K and we still finish all of our thesis films 2K because that's still the widestly accepted DCP format is 2K. And so you're going to festivals, you're screening at theaters, it's 2K. I watched those, you know, we were just at the DGA two weeks ago watching all the thesis films and they looked amazing at 2K. The fun thing about this Mac Pro is it's gonna make the process of working in post less painful. And that's way more exciting for me than like 4K delivery versus 8K delivery. They also came out with a new monitor, also $6,000. Uh, actually, it might only be $5,000. And they are marketing this as the potential to be a true reference monitor. They compared it to like a $43,000 Sony reference monitor, and they were like, we want this to be color accurate. It's going to be full HDR. They're going to do their own micro coating, nano coating for a matte finish so you won't have reflections from the background. A lot of it sounds very exciting, but here's my worry about it. And I don't know how this is going to work yet is the problem with computer monitoring isn't just the monitor itself. Like they are saying in their marketing, we're going to calibrate everyone in the factory, which hooray, great. I would love it if we had consistency monitor or monitor. The problem isn't just the monitor though. It's Final Cut Pro. Like everybody's had this thing where you open a video file and you look at it in VLC and you look at it in QuickTime and it looks differently, right? The way software shows video is also part of how video looks on a computer. I'm not 100% sure I'm excited about this monitor until I see a workflow for how it's going to create consistent video monitor monitor. I, I mean, I think we need to see a really compelling argument for the reference monitor that they're making to justify the price. I'm more wary of that. Now, 
I'm more wary of it because it's something I so desperately want. Like if they really made a color accurate computer monitor that gives me what we're looking for, it'll make my life so much easier. So I, I guess I'm just <laughs> like afraid to hope. What's the next best alternative on the marketplace that you would... I have a random HP that I got for 500 bucks. Like I don't actually... I deliberately don't obsess about my computer monitor because the software thing drives me so insane. Every software shows video so differently than why even bother? You're working on your computer monitor. It doesn't really matter because they're all going to look a little different. And yeah. you're sending it out somewhere to actually be tested to make sure that it's going to work yep. as a video signal. Yeah. And you're saying it's a lot to pay and a tall order for this new monitor to accomplish that. Unless it's figured out the software problem too. And if it has done that, Hallelujah, worth five grand. But I mean, I'm gonna I'm just gonna be I'm gonna be careful getting my hopes up about that one. And for anyone in the community, anyone in the community who gets uh access and gets uh yeah. gets a look at it, let us know. We'd Absolutely. love to hear feedback. We would love to hear firsthand like people who have it in the field. All right, our next story this week, we should talk about Cinegear. We talked about Cinegear a couple weeks ago. Cinegear is the other big film North American trade show. There's NAB in April. Obviously, we did a podcast and we did 100 videos and we do a lot at NAB. We're doing more and more every year at Cinegear because everybody else is doing more and more every year at Cinegear because Cinegear is growing every year more and more. Panasonic released the <laughs> EVA1 last year at Cinegear, not at NAB. We wanted to cover three big pieces of news back to back out of Cinegear this year. George was actually there. So this is sort of like I was. tech news, but because George was there and I wasn't, we're going to be doing this tech news together. And the first one, the big one, George was in the room for the press conference. Panasonic has a new camera, the S1H. Super exciting. It was really cool. I, you know, just like Cinegear and NAB and stuff, having done both this year, um, it just felt like it was really lasered in on the filmmaking tools. Um, and I felt like that, uh, the, you know, that just, I mean, you're on the Paramount lot. That's just another way in which it, it lends itself to that experience. But the um, really cameraman, DPs, assistant camera, you know, that, that felt like the wheelhouse for it. There was less that happened maybe with Post, for example. Oh, yeah. Cinegear. One of the cool things was definitely being there for that announcement. They almost seemed nervous as they made it. Mm -hmm. It was really cool. Um, and it, it's an exciting product, I would say. So a bit of context, they announced the S1H, which is a full frame mirrorless camera and they've had an S1 since February, right? And Canon and Nikon came out with their full frame mirrorless last summer and Sony came out with theirs, the alpha series like 15 years ago or like three years ago, but it feels like forever ago. Um, so they have their cameras and this is the first video focused one so all of these camera manufacturers that are going to make a, a mirrorless camera and they're going to make one first that's really more targeted at the still shooter and then they're going to make one that has you know uh, with sony it was the a7s2 that's really more focused on the video shooter panasonic it started with the gh5 and then the gh5s was more fo focused on the video shooter so the s1h is the one that's more focused on the video shooter so it's a full frame mirrorless it's l mount which is a common mount that is shared between leica Sigma and Panasonic. And it is a 6K camera for $4,000 that shoots internal 10 bit 422 and it shoots 24p at 6K. It can shoot up to 60 frames per second in 4K. And it's got that Panasonic color science. And even better than that, it has V log and internal log recording and V gamut and internal color gamut, which previously, like we all fell in love with on the big Vericam, like the Vericam 35 and the Vericam LT, and then rolled out into the EVA1, which is a camera they came out with at Cinegear two years ago. Panasonic very much 
uses Cinegear as a way of being like, these are for filmmakers. We are interested in cinema here. And it's very much like it's a very bold statement from them. Interestingly, Panasonic still doesn't have a big cinema camera that's full frame. Sony has Venice, Red S Monstro, Aria has LXLF, Canon has the C700 FF. Panasonic doesn't have one yet. But now they are making a cinema camera with full frame that does 6K for $4,000. So what are you missing out of it if it does all that? The thing to always remember is when you're using a still camera for video, there's going to be things it does really well. And it's going to have great image quality and you can often get great low light out of it. But then there's going to be a whole lot of like the ergonomic things that make shooting visual video pleasurable you're going to miss. Like if you bump up to the $6,000 EVA1, you're going to get full-size XLR inputs for two channels and audio meters so you can see the audio recording and you can adjust it on the fly and you can do smooth aperture racks and you can do repeatable moves and you're getting lens data recorded and, and you're going to get in whatever Vericam full frame comes out next year. However... Today, or this fall when the camera ships, you can buy an S1H and get 6K Panasonic footage with Vericam style imagery, V-Log, V-Gamma, for like four grand. And in addition, they're going to come out with a whole bunch of lenses that are specifically targeted at cinema shooters. So it's still going to be L-mount. It's still going to be like still style lenses, but they're going to have like a focus gear clutch so that the focus gear feels smooth and you can do repeat focus moves and all sorts of cool stuff. You know who I think is going to buy these? I think every DP who shoots a lot of Vericam is going to buy this to be there like, I do little jobs on this. And then on big jobs, this is my C camera that I just randomly pick up other stuff. And it's going to intercut seamlessly with Vericam and EVA1. I was going to ask, they also, there was also an upgrade package, right? So the S1, which is already out, which is $2,500, you could buy an upgrade firmware package for $200 that would enable a lot of the features. I don't think you get all the features because that would sort of hobble the S1H, and I think the S1H has some hardware things making it better. Sure. But, I mean, the S1 has image stabilization built in, and I don't think you're going to have image stabilization at the S1H. That's something that Panasonic usually gives up. It's easier to do other parts of video processing without image stabilization built in. I think that upgrade firmware, if I remember, only takes you up to 4K, but it does give you 98 kilohertz sample rate for audio, which is kind of crazy that you can sample that in a camera. If you're in the market and say you don't own one of these full-frame mirrorless and you're looking at it, why is this the one and would it be worth it to just, like you said, I mean, of course, if it's possible, to just pay a little bit more to get the cinema camera, like the non-full-frame made-for-photography body? If you are, I am a 24-7 filmmaker and I shoot nothing but motion, you should get a cinema camera, whatever that is. You should, you know, if you can't afford the EVA1, you should find a way to get like a used C100 or something. You should get a dedicated motion picture camera. But the reality of the situation is, is many of us are hybrids now. Like for instance, I, I don't own a video camera at the moment, but I own an X-H1, which is Fuji's video targeted stills camera because I shoot a lot of stills. Every time I go to a trade show, I shoot stills. Every time I do a review, I shoot stills. I shoot a lot of stills and then I do a little bit of video and I rent a bigger video camera when I'm working on bigger video productions. That being said, if I were looking at the mirrorless marketplace right now, I think Panasonic has a really good position for itself for a couple of reasons. One, that 6K is a huge feature. Two, rumors are that we're going to have ProRes RAW out of it, so you could be shooting 6K RAW out of it to something like a Shogun Inferno, which would be super exciting. On top of all that, it's the only one that's out right now that's part of an open format alliance, right? Sony has their own proprietary lens mount. 
Nikon has their own lens right. mount. Canon has their own lens mount. Whereas Panasonic's like, no, we're playing well with Sigma. We're playing well with Leica. We're part of the L mount. It's like a common format. And filmmakers like common formats. I would really, if I was going full frame, which I'm not, I'm very happy with Super 35. But if I bumped up to full frame, Panasonic, I think, would be the winner for me at the moment. All right. Our Ask No Film School question for this week is, Harry Smith asks, hey, how do you find and compensate your crew? This is a really great question, Harry Smith. So I'm going to tell you the little secret of the film industry that most of us already know. All the good jobs go to people you already know. Work is so irregular in film that, like, I need a DP. I probably know five DPs who are hanging out not working that I can call and see if they're available for a job. I remember once I tried to find, I tried to hire a programmer for something, like an online web developer, and I had coffee with my friend who was a developer, and he was like, Oh, you're trying to hire like the film industry where everybody's unemployed and willing to do anything. Like, this is web development, man. <laughs> We're the commodity. You have to pursue us. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so the first thing I do if I need someone and I don't know anyone good is I call the other people I know who are good and I ask for recommendations. So I'm like, oh, hey, I need a DP. I call the four or five people I usually hire, none of them are working, then I call two or three directors I know and I ask them for, hey, who are the DPs you've been working with lately? And I get their info and I see if they're available. And usually at that point, I've hired everyone I need to hire. However, if not, there are a couple of good job websites and I've hired, I don't think I've ever hired a DP on them, but I've definitely hired like second AC, definitely PA, definitely like lower on the uh, call sheet people off mandy.com. And believe it or not, Craigslist. Having been a producer on a many ranges of projects from, you know, branded content to indie spec things to TV pilots to features, I can tell you that one of the best ways to hire is to get a person that you know and trust and then have them make referrals. The great thing is the more you do, you add those people to your Rolodex. Yep. So then you can say, that AC who is on that project... You know, I'm not working with that DP, unfortunately, he's busy, but I loved that AC. And if my DP doesn't have one or his isn't available, et cetera, et cetera. So you end up building a really nice roster, your own roster of people that you've worked with over over time with every project you do. And really, ideally, you end up with people who work at all different levels. So you can say, this is a bigger project that may be out of this person's scope, but it's perfect for so-and-so. So the second half of your question was, how do you compensate them? And I, I like two things. I like money and food. Um, <laughs> I think those two things are, um, and frankly, like respect for boundaries, especially time boundaries. A big one for me, like when I'm on the being hired side is someone who's like, great, I'm hiring you and I'm not going to keep you 24 hours in a row. Like people who wrap at a reasonable hour, things like that. I think that's compensating people. But um, I like to pay people money. I think that's a, a reasonable thing to do for working hard and then make sure they're fed every six hours and that there's snacks and coffee around in between. And in terms of negotiating those rates, you will likely find in your area that there are sort of going rates, right? Like when you're in LA, PAs get two to two fifty a day. When you're in Dallas, PAs probably get one to one fifty a day. Different markets have different rates. And like the best way to figure out what the rates are is to work a little bit on other people's projects, see what people are paying, see what's available, things like that. Because we can't really answer 
blanketly worldwide what everybody is going to get anywhere. Yeah, you have to pay and feed people if you expect them to come back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those are the, those are things you you need to do. And ideally, you're not going to p- feed them with pizza. That tends to be not a super popular choice. You have yeah. to feed them pretty well, and you know, keep a nice crafty. Uh, st- uh, craft services table going throughout the day, which means there should be food available and drinks and water and shade and places to sit. Y- you know, if you want to go with, as you know, you might in film school or early on, the favor system, which is sort of like, uh, hey, if you can come by and boom up for me today, I can help you on your project later. You just have to be aware that that's people may not come for multiple days they may not stay for the entire day because that's you know it's not really the kind of compensation that keeps people around that's just also, the way it goes on the favor system the favor system works fine in film school because film school is like this magic time where people aren't as worried about money for some reason like you are <laughs> but not in the same way and like there's like a camaraderie and we're all learning and growing and so like everybody in where i went to film school is like i'll boom up for you you boom up for me we'll work out this trade it'll all be good it works professionally that doesn't work almost ever because the beauty of money is it forces you to put an accurate value on what you are doing so you're out there boom upping you negotiated your best you're getting 250 a day to boom up you feel like you're getting a good value for your money and then two weeks later you want to hire george to come out and produce your thing and he negotiates and he gets 500 dollars a day or whatever because producing is a higher on the color sheet skill and he's a better negotiator or whatever because a dollar value is put on it everybody is like used to that Whereas if you trade a day of producing for a day of boom hopping and George is used to getting more for producing than people get for boom hopping, he's going to be grumbly. I mean, I don't know, you in particular might be grumbly, but a gener- in general, when you are doing something for free and you're trading it for someone else's free labor, everyone tends to overestimate their own contribution and underestimate the contribution of the other person on the other side of a barter. Financial barters like that, I've seen sour friendships. Yeah, and the other thing is that like everyone's going to have their skill set. So yeah. if you're in film school and you're great at building sets, which I've known people who were, then you're going to build sets on a lot of projects. But then you're going to need the person you built a set for who's maybe a great producer to help yeah. produce your project. And that's just not going to work for exactly the reasons you outlined when you come into a professional like people are expecting to be paid for their services. You know, when you're paying people for their services on a production, then you're going to get what you paid for. And that's yep. just the way it's like that you're is. not if you're paying if you're paying for nothing, then you may get some of something, you may get nothing, you can't really complain. So, when I hear the question how do you find and compensate your crew? I think finding crew um, you want to find people, you want to know a lot of people and meet a lot of people, find out what they're good at, and what they want to do. That's one way to find your crew. Posting places is another, but compensate your crew. You really do need to pay your crew. Uh, the more, the better you take care of the people on your crew, the better your shoot is going to be. There's just no question about that. Which is the perfect wrap up for another week of the No Film School podcast. All right, so all of the things we talked about this week, we've got articles up at nofilmschool.com, so check those out. We'll have a post about this podcast with like links specifically to the things we talked about in this article. If you want to ask us a question for Ask No Film School, you can reach out to us on the Twitter or ask at nofilmschool.com, or you can go to the boards. I check the boards all the time. 
So you can go to our community boards, ask a question there. We will often find a question there. If you want more film tech knowledge, I have a separate film tech podcast called The Week in Film Tech, which is like if you want a much longer discussion of the history of the Apple Mac Pro and that kind of stuff, check out The Week in Film Tech. Um, as always, keep coming back to nofilmschool.com in order to hear, uh, to see all of this kind of content. I'm Charles Hain at Charles Hain on Twitter. I'm George Edelman at George Edelman on Twitter. And we will see you guys next week, June 13th, probably some more Cinegear news or maybe a whole bunch of new news that you missed out on because you're making so many movies. 